0: Go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. So it's been a couple weeks again and a providential break from studying Ephesians together uh, and hearing from uh, Dana out of First John. And so. Uh, again, I'll remind us where we're at here in Ephesians this first section, this first part of the first section of Ephesians. This first section of of Ephesians makes up the first three chapters whereby we find Paul making a concerted effort to teach the church at Ephesus doctrinal and Christological truths, such that he uh, he labors on about these. Things so that they would understand that these are the foundation whereby, when he turns the the letter in the last three chapters to new life in Christ, they would understand that where that is born out of what power they have to engage in it, and to what end uh, is to come of that. And the first part, the first section of the first part of the of the book of Ephesians, or the letter to the Ephesians, is what we're working through this morning. We'll be finishing up chapter 1, which references the exalted Christ, or the heavenly witness to to the exalted Christ. And our specific passage this morning serves as sort of a transitory passage, or transitional passage, into the earthly witness of the exalted Christ, which begins, In chapter 2 and so we're going to see a reference here at the end of our passage to the church that earthly witness to the exalted Christ so follow along as I read for us Ephesians 1 beginning in the second half of verse 19 through verse 23 hear the word of the Lord according to the working of his great might Let's beseech the Lord's help this morning in prayer. Oh Lord, we ask for your help this morning. Lord, I ask for your help as I preach your word. That you would work in my mind and, and through my faculties that I would preach it rightly. When I pray for, We pray for your people who hear your word. You would work in your spirit that they would receive it. As truth, as it aligns with your with your truth, that we would work together, that we would not be only hearers of your word but doers also. we do ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, as we address this passage this morning, I'm reminded or I, I think of if, if you've ever read a good mystery novel or a good uh twist and turns movie or book that that maybe you've you've read or you've watched and so by the time you you're getting through that and you, you, there's these kind of markers that go along and you're wondering well that was kind of odd or or there's something going on there more and then finally the big reveal at some point in time near the end and you go oh that's what was happening. That that's what was going on there. You, you know, sometimes it happens, you know, in those time travel movies where you see something odd happening and then you realize that it was the character who went back. And anyways, I don't want to go off on that. But the idea is, is that as we look at our passage this morning, Paul is opening up the word of God to the Ephesians. He's writing under the inspiration of Scripture and inscripturating the Word of God also to them. But he does so on the basis of previous revelation so that as the readers are the original readers of this letter would understand that as Paul uses such phrases and terminology that is so referent to the Old Testament that there would be this aha moment, especially for those Jewish Christians that were steeped in the Jewish scriptures. And for those Gentiles, maybe though they may not have been raised in the scriptures, they would with greater eagerness go to them, those Jewish scriptures, and read them and find where Christ has fulfilled them. And so as we approach our passage this morning, we're going to see that uh, Paul makes direct reference to the exaltation of Christ. We're going to see this under three headings, the origin of his exaltation, the extent of his exaltation, and the hope of his exaltation. And what we see Paul doing here as he transitions from the heavenly witness of the exalted Christ to the earthly witness is he utilizes language that is appropriate to Christ's humanity. Spatial language, like raising up and seating. This, this, is, this is spatial language. This is These are places, heavenly places. Christ is being raised up to the heavenly places. I say that he does so in what is appropriate to Christ's humanity because God is omnipresent. The, the uh, divinity of Christ is omnipresent. It, it has all the essential attributes. It has all the attributes of divinity. And so to speak of Christ as being raised up to being seated, to being in the heavenly places, to being worked in, is a reference to Christ's humanity. And we're going to see that that comes with very specific intention. There are other language, like transitive language, like putting things under, giving him as, or gave him as head. These This language whereby there is um, um, conferring of authority and power on Christ. But in Christ's divinity, there is no lack. There could be no power conferred upon Christ's divinity that he did not already possess according to his divine nature. And so it is appropriate for us to see that Paul is specifically using language that is appropriate to Christ's humanity for a specific purpose and a theological purpose that I believe will play out to great encouragement for us and hopefully will generate that Christian hope that we may have in Christ's exaltation. We're going to see how Paul uses two Psalms to highlight that Christ is the fulfillment of all that the Jewish scriptures anticipated beginning with Adam and all the way through David and so we're going to begin with the origin of his exaltation in that second half of verse 19 and and into verse 20. We see here that the reality of Adam's failure is overcome by the victory of Christ's triumph. What what, um, Paul is addressing here, especially in this first part of Ephesians, is the church triumphant. These um, idealized or eschatological realities of the church. The church triumphant is is those that are are now with Christ. They have gone ahead and they have received their crown of glory. And he does so so that as he transitions in his letter, and and he does so in parts here in the first half, but as he transitions in the letter to the church militant, to us now existing as the church that live out our pilgrim days as the Lord tarries or as he extends our lives, we may have a sure hope in what Christ has accomplished. And so He, the origin of Christ's exaltation begins there in verse 20 that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Christ being raised from the dead His resurrection is given this uh, original status of his exaltation, that it's the beginning of it. That where he went into the grave, he now comes out of the grave, triumphing over death. And it is, he goes to the grave because the grave is where the first head of humanity had taken it. Adam had taken humanity into the grave as that federal head in the garden when he sins against the Lord, leading himself and immediately leading Eve and then all his posterity after him to the grave. There would be no other place to go and get humanity except the grave. Christ would would go to the grave in order to resurrect humanity from where their first federal head had taken them. Romans 5, beginning in verse 12, Paul writes to the Romans, he says, "'Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam,' who is a type of him who was to come. So already there in Romans 5, we see Paul directing that audience back to the garden, where Adam stood in the place of all humanity. He was proffered a better existence, a greater reality, where he existed in true bliss and true happiness. Uprightness, it says in Ecclesiastes, that man was made upright before God. And yet, God offered him something greater through covenant, glory. As it says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's a glory that was fallen short of in sin, and it's specifically in Adam, where man falls from their status as uh, pure image bearers, and now taken down to the grave. Paul does something similar in First Corinthians 15, where he writes that in Adam all die. There's a there's a specific um, intention or a specific uh, focus that Paul has on death in our in our life, on death as a reality. To humanity. One is that it was not created to die. Man was not created to die. And so death is introduced by Adam, and he does so in order to contrast and to typologically contrast the reality that in Christ all live, and to a greater and more um, profound and real and um, glorious way. And so our Savior must enter death, that the free gift of grace would abound to many. The origin of Christ's exaltation, Paul first addresses, is that he was raised from the dead. Death couldn't hold him, or the grave couldn't hold him, and had no claim upon Christ. Death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the fence of Adam, but death did not reign over Christ. So the grave couldn't hold him and Christ is raised up, he's resurrected. And then he says he's resurrected and it's not just that Christ is brought back to life, but then he's taken to that eschatological reality to be seated at the right hand of the Father. Or as Paul writes to the Ephesians, he says that he is seated. He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Again, addressing Christ according to his humanity, where we have the appropriated actions of the Trinity here, where God the Father is, is raising up Christ and seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So that we would not be confused as to see there's some sort of subordination of the Son of God where he's seated in this lower position or or that He he was actually devoid of his, he empties himself of his divinity and then takes it on again in exaltation. But that we would see that in this language, what Paul is getting at is that Christ being seated at the right hand of the Father is, be, is to make the point that he's taken humanity where it had not gone before. Taken humanity where, it had, how, where God had intended it to go at first creation. And so here, here Paul draws upon the most quoted, or one could say the most explained psalm in the New Testament. I say explained because what is presented in Psalm 110, and you can turn there as I introduce it to us. What is presented to us in Psalm 110 uh, would have been somewhat of a mystery to those that originally heard it. Those who were it was originally given to would have read Psalm 110 with... Um, A mind that would be veiled in mystery for what things, what glorious things are said in the psalm are only further revealed and unveiled in Christ. Christ does so himself. We'll get into that as we'll see in Mark chapter 12. It goes on uh, later on. Paul or Peter references it in his writings. And then. We're familiar of the book of Hebrews and its drawing upon the truth found in Psalm 110 to proclaim the glorious reality of the risen Christ. Psalm 110 is divided into two pronouncements. or There's two, two main pronouncements in Psalm 110 in verse 1 and verse 4. In verse 1, we, we read that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Then in verse 4, the next pronouncement is, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. These are not honors given to David. Though David would be charged with the ruling over the land, over it, over the people of Israel. Though he was charged with cleansing the land of its enemies to be given peace, David and his physical descendants. It was not, the priesthood was not given to David. David was not to lead in sacramental worship of the Lord. But here in Psalm 110, it speaks of a king, of a priest king, of one who would lead the people in sacramental worship. This mysterious psalm had worked its way into some form of notoriety as to its messianic implications. We know this because Christ references it in Mark chapter 12. And beginning in verse 35, it says, And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. You can imagine because Christ was unveiling to them the mysteries of this psalm. He was saying that, that as David wrote this, David wrote in mystery. There's a Uh, a theological term whereby um, David writes in the voice of God and in the voice of the Son of God. And so when David pens this psalm, I have to imagine that he wrote it, and and like we read in 1 Peter, he went back and peered into it to understand it greater. Going to other passages, I'm sure, of Jewish scriptures, And wondering, who is this king that the Lord will sit upon the throne? Who is this king that will be a priest forever? That the Lord is is your right hand and he will shatter the kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the whole earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. In quoting Psalm 110, Paul is bringing the glorious mystery of the hypostatic union into view. One medieval commentator explains it this way. He says, When we say that Christ Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, it should be understood that according to his humanity, he partakes of the Father's choicest blessings. And according to his divinity, it is understood as equality with the Father. What Paul is bringing into focus here is that Christ is the God-man. That is, he references a psalm that references a uh, pre-existent son of David. He brings into view for us the glorious reality of the hypostatic union of our Savior. That he is the God-man, truly God and truly man that he's going to build upon this, that, that, if, God, that if Christ is the God-man, and, that, and, and as we get into the extent of his exaltation, he's going to draw upon that to draw great hope from this. The, so the origin of Christ's exaltation as it relates to his humanity is his, is his resurrection from the dead, whereby humanity is born anew. Where the first Adam brought death... The second brings life and takes it to where humanity had never been taken before, the heavenly places. And to what extent is this exaltation? Look for me at verse 21 if, you turn back to, if you've turned back to Ephesians chapter 1. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. What is the extent of Christ's exaltation? The extent of Christ's exaltation covers all of creation, bringing it into Submission, bringing into submission all that was lost by Adam and more. Scripture tells us in other places, and, and we'll read as Paul quotes out of Psalm 8, but that um, man was created a little lower than the angels. And here, here, Christ is taken, is given the extent of his exaltation, is that he is above all creation. And there is a reality that he's above all new creation and current creation. Because there's rule and authority and power and dominion. Things that exist now and and he references in this age and the age to come. That Christ is now above all these things. That all these things are working under him. It is here that Paul also alludes to Isaiah chapter forty. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter forty as we are, seek to understand better the extent of Christ's exaltation. Now, Isaiah chapter forty has a uh, a sentimental place in my heart. It's uh, at the middle of this um, the middle of this uh, chapter that is read in in my favorite movie chariots of fire when eric little is uh forgoes participating in the olympics on the lord's day and he stands against uh the rulers of his day who are imploring him it's just one race it's just one lord's day and he um tells them that he won't do it and so in the movie at least it shows that he reads a passage as this that will out of this that we'll get to. But Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 alludes to Isaiah 40. And see the um, intention of Isaiah 40. So as we get into the context of it, we can understand what it was written for. In Isaiah 40 verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Comfort, comfort my people. The intent of Isaiah 40 is is a word of comfort to the Lord's. Fall down into verse eight. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The sure promise that the Lord would provide a redeemer that the Lord would provide a mediator between him and man is under the promise of the Lord and that though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. How is he able to do this? Verse 10, Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him the lord will rule with might and strength we can see that echoed there in ephesians 1 when there's a reference to the might of god and the and the power of god and then in verses 12 through 26 there's a declaration of who God is we won't read them all but we can see just in our English bibles how many of the verses begin with the word who or whom who has measured the waters who has measured the spirit of the lord who taught him the path of justice and then these are this passage which was read in the in the motion picture behold the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales behold he takes up the coastlands like fine dust Lebanon would not suffice for fuel nor nor are its beasts enough for burnt offerings all the nations are as nothing before him they are accounted by him as less than nothing an emptiness to whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him consider what Paul is saying in Ephesians when he's referencing Christ being seated at the right hand of the Father. To whom will you liken God or what likeness compare to him? And then in verse 26, that is very much referent to Ephesians chapter one, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So we turn back to Ephesians chapter 1 and we see that Christ has placed the extent of his exaltation as far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every, above every name and that is named. Not only in this age, but in the one to come. That Christ is placed above all creation. All the names of those stars that the Lord gave names to, Christ's name is above it. All those nations great, who have they have been down through the ages, who we read of in our history books, who have ruled the known world, And yet have been reduced to dust in many places Christ is above them for what purpose is Paul making this explanation of the extent of Christ's exaltation it is to again to draw back to the reality of what Christ's work was when he came and it, there's echoes even of Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The idea that Adam was to rule over creation. He was to have dominion over God's creation he was the crown of God's creation as the image bearer of God and so he was to rule and have dominion over it and there was actually a subduing of it to bring under control to bring under submission of his rule and he would rule in his original state as a priest king because he would not only rule over them as the highest governmental authority, but he would rule over them in leading them to worship the one true and living God. And this, for this reason, Paul utilizes a phrase out of Psalm 8. So turn with me now to Psalm chapter 8. I'd like to see Paul's study if he, if he utilizes scrolls or if the Lord enabled him to remember these things from memory. But I'd have to imagine there'd be stacks of open scrolls as he's writing these, if he's using them uh, according to uh, a more natural process of memory. Psalm 8 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What Paul is doing here with Christ's exaltation is he's connecting it with the first creation the first Adam, who was given this dominion and authority over these lower beings. And he's showing that in this typological reality, we we recognize that in typology there's correspondence and that there's escalation in the anti-type. So where Adam was to rule over all the lower beings, Christ, the second Adam, rules over all beings, both heavenly and earthly And in connecting Christ's exaltation with language of first creation, he points to the reality of the resurrected Christ being the firstborn of the new creation and takes his place above it all and so is above all in this age also. This subjection of all things to Christ, moreover, is for the benefit of the church. So, we have this understanding that Christ is over all things, but in this age, it is for a concerted and focused purpose. He does not, so, he does not put over man to rule the nations of men in uh, governmental authority. Though he rules over them as sovereign Lord, ordaining all that comes to pass, he does not rule over them as uh, their king nor are we to turn the nations into many church states so that they look upon Christ as their king. For Paul specifically states here that Christ is given this authority, that he puts all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Why is it that way? Because the church is Christ's body. Because the church is is an extension or the beginning or the working out of this new creation found in Christ. Who is the firstborn of the new creation. According to his humanity, of course. This subjection of all things to Christ, moreover, is for the benefit of the church which is Christ's body. In other words, the dominion that God intended for humanity to have over all creation is in the process of coming to pass through the Messiah's kingly rule over all things. And so we can turn our attention now to the hope of his exaltation at the end of our passage this morning. We see that Paul is particularly eager that his readers appreciate how God has used the same power by which he raised Jesus from the dead also to benefit them. We see that first he gave Christ as a sacrifice for their sins, and now he gives Christ to the church for their spiritual well-being. Oh, how many conceptions of needs do we come up with as a people as we look upon our lives and when we look we look upon our spheres of of influence or our spheres uh, where we exist in our vocation in our family in in our governmental system and we believe that we need things that we need things for our family we need things for our job we need things for our government to provide for us. And yet as we read God's Word, we recognize that the subjection of all things to Christ is for the benefit of the church. That we read that He gives Christ to the church for her spiritual well-being. That He would provide for her every need, both physical and spiritual. That we look to Christ in those moments when we feel like there is an unmet need in our life and we see it provided by the one who is above all things, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. John Gill says in verse, uh, uh, as a comment on the end of verse 22, he says, he is a natural head. Or is that to his church, as a human head is to a human body? He is a true and proper head, is of the same nature with his body, is in union to it, communicates life to it, is superior to it, and more excellent than it. He is a perfect head. Nothing is wanting in him. He knows all his people and is sensible of their wants and does supply them. His eye of love is always on them. His ears are open to their cries. He has a tongue to speak to them and for them, which he uses. And he smells a sweet savor in them, in their graces and garments, though they are all his own and perfumed by himself. What we have in Christ's exaltation is the very hope that we need in everyday life. Is a very hope that we need when we look at the news cycle and see of wars and endless wars. When we look at the news cycle and, and are being told that this is the beginning of a new disease season where uh, diseases will mutate and and become more deadly or become more transmittable. We read a news cycle, especially as Christians, and we see people... More increasingly giving over to their deprived nature, calling things calling what is evil good and what is good evil, using the power of the state to bring upon uh, what they believe is justice upon those who proclaim Christ openly. and we wonder, Lord, where where is all this in your plans, Lord give us the supply of what we need. And maybe we look at our own household and we think, when will these needs be met? How will these needs be met? Let us look to our exalted Christ who provides a supply of them, who looks on us with an eye of love, who hears our cries and who speaks to us through his word And it says, at the end, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. One commentator says, it may well have the idea that the church is being filled by Christ, who is being filled wholly, entirely, are in every way by God. Let us pray.